The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Would you pray with me? There is none like you. There's none in heaven like you. There's none on earth like you. There's none under the earth like you. There has never been and there never will be anyone like you. You're holy. You're perfect. You're sovereign. You're eternally gracious. You're eternally good. You're eternally faithful. So God, we offer ourselves to you because you're the only one worthy. Everything else would try to steal our joy. Everything else would try to to kill our joy, to kill our life. And yet you have given everything to make us yours, your, your precious possession. And so God, we give ourselves to you this morning because you're worthy of it. And so God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your care. Who are we that you would be mindful of us? But God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your sacrifice. And so God, just like every other day before today, we need you this morning. We need you to speak to us clearly. We are without understanding. We need your understanding. We need you to strengthen our faith. Our faith is weak. We need you to make our love uh, grow hot because we have grown cold. We need you this morning. So speak to us clearly. We love you. We're waiting on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad that you made it with us uh, this morning. It's, it's a little bit cold out there. It's a little bit dangerous cold. In fact, if you feel like there's a rock rolling around in your shoe, it might be your toes. So just be careful, all right, guys, because it's supposed to get really bad. But I'm glad that you, you braved the cold weather and you made it here today. And we've been talking about the disciplines of a disciple, right? We've been talking about spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are purposeful disruptions to our natural lives to turn us toward the supernatural, right? They're purposeful disruptions in our natural lives to turn us toward the supernatural. And they are most commonly what God uses to transform us and to make us more like Jesus. And the disciplines we've discussed thus far have all been uh, private in nature, maybe even personal. So we talked about the Word of God, right? We talked about you need to be reading the Word of God personally, eating your bread. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, okay? So that's, that's personal. You need to read the Word. I'm not reading it for you. It's something you need to be doing. We talked about prayer. We looked at Jesus' teaching teaching us through the Lord's Prayer, and, and so we learn that you need to be praying. It's not about me praying for you, although that should happen, but it's not that. It's about you need to be praying, right? We talked not only about the Word of God in prayer, but we talked about giving, all right? So we talked about you living a life of generosity in response to God's generosity to you, right? So again, these are, are personal, maybe even private.
private disciplines. And, and so our focus has been in that way. But we're about to make a shift in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to look at some disciplines that are more corporate uh, in, in, in view, corporate in focus. And, and so the Lord has given us these disciplines that, that not only are private and personal, but disciplines that affect our, our community here. And why has he done that? He's done that because God, for some reason, in all of his goodness and, and in his way to, to fulfill our joy, chooses to use us to accomplish his work in one another. Isn't that true? God chooses to use us to accomplish his work in one another. And think about that. Think about in your life. Are there people in your life that God has used to shape you and to mold you and to challenge you to be more like Jesus? There are people in my life that I will, I am forever grateful to God for because, because of, of their influence and because of the relationship with them. I love the Lord Jesus more, right? God cho- chose to use people in my life and in this community of faith to, to, to make me grow in my faith, to make me love him more, and I'm forever grateful in that. And, and we see in a community of faith, God accomplishes his work in us in so many ways. In fact, he uses us to do all of these things. He uses us to bring healing. He uses us to battle temptation. He uses us to encourage and to strengthen and to comfort and to challenge and to discipline and to rebuke and to teach and to relieve burdens and meet needs. These are all through other believers. It's pretty incredible. And the Bible calls this, this group of people many different things. The, the Bible calls us um, the body of Christ. The Bible calls us the church, right? <clears throat> the body calls us God's, uh, the Bible calls us God's family. And I'm going to refer to it this morning in, in a different term as a, as a community of faith, right? I'm talking about, a, when I'm talking about our church, I'm talking about a community of faith. And what is a community? A community is defined as a unified body of individuals, a unified body of individuals. And we see communities all over the place, right? Maybe it's neighborhoods. You're a unified body of individuals. Maybe just about your geographic location, but you are a unified body of individuals. Maybe it's a club you're involved in. Maybe it's uh, an, an online community, right? Anybody, any ladies in here on, on Pinterest, right? Anybody, anybody, right? And any husband have to do a bunch of different projects that you didn't understand, maybe with pallet wood, uh, because of Pinterest, right? Thank Pinterest for that. But anyway, like uh, maybe it's an online community based on a hobby. Maybe it's your friendships, right? But it's a unified uh, body of individuals. And what makes uh, community ineffectual? What breaks our community down? What, what makes them not helpful? Well, I would think that if the core of community is unity around something, then I would think that when that unity is eroded, then that community would become ineffectual. Think about it. In your neighborhood, what if you're united in your neighborhood around, you know what, we want our neighborhood to be safe, we want it to look a certain way, you know what I'm saying, we want it to be clean and nice and all these things. Well, what if people stop caring? What if somebody was like, you know what, I could park in my driveway or my garage on the street, or I could just pull my truck all the way up to my front door, right? I'm going to start doing that. Or what if someone said, hey, you know what, I like my, my living room couch so much, I want the neighborhood to see it, and so I'm going to put it on the front lawn, right? Like, what if that changes? What happens to that community? It kind of breaks down. Your unity has changed. What about with your, uh, in your clubs? What if your interests don't align anymore? You don't care about the same things as much anymore, or, or with your friendships, right? People change. 
change all the time. What if, what if they've changed? And so you know what? You don't really, you're not really unified on anything anymore. How effectual are those communities once the unity has eroded? Well, not very, not very at all. And, and so before we get to the disciplines in the next couple of weeks that are more corporate in nature, I, want to, I, I think it would be helpful for us to have an understanding of our community of faith and understand what unifies us, how are we unified, and how do we protect that unity? Because we've just determined, right, that, that if, our, if our community of faith, if the unity in our community of faith erodes, then we're not going to be effective. I can talk about these corporate disciplines all day, but if we are not united people, then what's it, what's it going to do? How's that going to help, right? So we're going to look at a passage here in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And I think it's incredibly helpful because it defines our unity and then gives us keys to protecting that unity. So Ephesians chapter 6, all right? Go ahead and find that. Find that on your smartphone or use a, a paper like a caveman. You can do that too, and, uh, and we'll follow along. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what we're going to do today, we're just going to walk through that passage together. Let's unpack this passage together, see what the Lord has to say to us about our community and about unity. Look there in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So this is Paul writing. He's in prison, and he's already communicated multiple times, even in this letter, that I'm in jail because I'm trying to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If I weren't trying to do that, I wouldn't be in jail. He said it there in Ephesians 3.1. He says, look, I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles. Right, So he's saying, I'm bringing the gospel to you. So, so, so why does he bring that up? He's bringing it up because he's saying, look, I'm not messing around, okay? Like, I'm in jail, all right? And so this is serious, okay? This, the things I'm talking to you about, this community and this unity, it's, it's a real thing, and it matters so much that while I'm in jail, I'm going to take my time to write to you about this. Don't, don't, don't miss that. This is serious business I'm talking to you about. So what he says is, look, a prisoner, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is the calling to which we've been called? Well, Paul talks about that in the previous chapter. Chapter 3, look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the call is that God has made us heirs. Romans eight seventeen says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. This call is that God's united us in the same body, the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. This call is also that God has made us partakers of the promise of God in Jesus. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to recap this scripture, to recap this call, God has called us from orphanhood to heirs. God has called us from man-made division to God-made unity. God has called us from being hopeless to abounding in hope. So that's the call of God on our lives now. We've been called to be heirs with Christ and a unified body of believers abounding in hope, right? That's what God has called us to. Your old life, all that, that's gone. Here's what you are now. Here's what God has called you to. He's called you to be an heir with Christ, right? So the honor uh, and, and the glory that we'll experience in heaven one day, we will, we will rule and reign with Christ. So, so you're an heir with Christ now, no longer an enemy of God, but literally a child of God and therefore an heir of God. So, so we have been called to be heirs with Christ. We're unified body of believers. You used to not belong. You used to be bastards, but now we're in this family and God has called us together as a unified body of believers who are now abounding in hope. Used to be without hope, but now we have this hope and that hope is that we will be glorified with Jesus one day. We have an incredible calling that God has called us to, but here's what he says. Now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling? I can walk in a manner worthy of a lesser call. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling? What does that even look like? Well, skip to verse 3 there in chapter 4. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So a walk that is worthy of our calling, a way to live that is worthy of our calling, is a walk that maintains the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Look there in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he, that's Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So through Jesus, we are one. We are united in the bond of peace. So God has made peace for us with himself. That's what verse 16 shows us, that, that we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer sitting under the wrath of God, but we have made peace with God. Jesus has made peace with God for us, but also with one another. God made peace between, he's speaking about the, the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And he says, look, I've torn down that wall of his hostility. I've, I've brought you together in one body. And so in our context, God has broken down all the walls of hostility between all of our people groups and has brought us together. We have peace with one another. We see that there in verse 14. And so God has called us to a, a unity and that's worthy of the calling that God's placed on our life to preserve, to walk in a way that preserves our unity in Christ. And this unity isn't common and it isn't flimsy, it's holy and it's eternal. When you think about unity in, in our world and in our culture, you see it all over the place, but, but ultimately a lot of the times our unity that we see, the common unity we see, it's flimsy and it's even fickle. You know, I think about uh, uh, September 11th. There, last week I was just talking to somebody, someone just asked me, and, and maybe you get this question all the time, where were you? Do you remember where you were on September 11th? And, and I do, and, and we started to talk about that. And, and as I started to think, I started to think about the times after 9-11. Like, we were absolutely united then, right? Like, our country, like, probably could not have been more united than those days after that. I think a good example of that uh, is probably, like, do you guys remember that song by Toby Keith, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue? 
oh, what a, what a terrible song. But anyway, like that song right there, like, like I don't like country music because I'm a Christian. And uh, so anyway, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but like when that song came out, I was like, yeah, America. Like I bought that album. Why did I buy that album, right? Like I don't do that. But anyway, like I bought that album. That song was number one on the Billboard like, like hit list. Like that was a, it was a platinum song, right? Like why is that? Because like we were all united, right? Like I was ready. I was still in high school. I was a senior in high school. Like I was ready to go join the military. Like thank God I didn't, didn't do that because I wanted to be in the Air Force, but I'm colorblind. And so they would be like, you can't fly a plane, but you, maybe you can work on planes. Planes. Could you imagine me working on planes? Like, we just had planes falling out of the sky. It would not be good. I would not, maybe they'd let me drive a drone, though. But again, me driving a drone? Anyway, like, it would not have been good. But we were, like, all about, like, we were all together. But did that last? No, that didn't last. It, it faded. Even something is, it, it, like, patriotism is important, and yet it even faded. You think about recently, you think about, like, the, the protests in Ferguson. You had a, a nationwide unity among people uh, about something incredibly important, wh- whatever side you're on here. And, and yet, like, that just happened, and, and it's kind of faded already. It started to fade. And you think about silly things. We united over silly things, but even that unity fades. Like, like stupid things that don't matter, like sports, right? Memphis Tiger fans in here. In 2008, when we went to the national championship and, and uh, almost won it, when we went to the national championship, like, you could not walk through Memphis without somebody, like, just, like, bleeding blue, right? Like, we loved our Tigers, right? Here we are, 2015, where have all the Tiger fans gone? Like, where are we? Oh, yeah, Kentucky, that's where they've gone. Like, nobody, it's flimsy, it fell apart, and, and so that's, that's, my point is, our common unity that we see all over the place, and in our communities that I've just named, the examples I've given it's, it's flimsy and it's fickle and it fades, but the unity of the spirit that God has called us to with one another, it's holy, it's eternal, it's different. And Paul clearly displays this uniqueness and this, and this holiness of our unity by clearly showing what we're united in and around. That we're not united in and around silly things. We're not united in and around things that can, can change and go away. Hey, look at verse 4 through 6 there in Ephesians 4. Here's what you're, we're united in and around. This is why our unity matters. This is why our unity is so holy. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So one body, we're united in Christ. We are now forever connected and dependent upon one another in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So our unity is not based around the tradition of I come to church on Sundays or, or you know what, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a member of this, of this Christian organization. Our unity is deeper than that. We're in a body of Christ together. We are dependent and forever connected to one another. Look around. Yeah, we're forever connected to one another. That's an incredibly deep connection. We're going to talk about that more next week. But one body, one spirit. We're united by the spirit. We're all empowered, taught by, helped by, and equipped by the same Holy Spirit. There's no believer. There's no believer who can exalt themselves over other believers saying, look how smart I am. Look how much understanding I have. Look at how great my gifts are. No, no, no. The same Holy Spirit who has equipped them, who has taught them, who 
has given, given them understanding is the same Holy Spirit who indwells in you. There is no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, or self-control in me if not for the one Holy Spirit. So we're united by the Spirit. There's one hope. We're united by our future. We all look forward to the same hope. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We aren't working towards different futures. We aren't placing our hope in different baskets, right? We're all in the same thing. We're all looking towards the same hope of eternal life with Jesus. We're united in hope. We're united with one Lord. We're united by one authority. We submit to the head of the body of Christ, which is who? Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So we're united by our mutual submission to Jesus. There's no division over who's in charge. No division over who we should focus our efforts on making happy or anything like that. No, no, no. It's Jesus. It's our one Lord. He's our one authority. We're united with one faith. We're united in faith in Jesus alone. F.B. Meyer defined this faith that unites us as the conviction and confidence regarding Jesus Christ as the only and perfect mediator of the divine grace and of eternal life through his work of atonement. So we are united in believing in the work of Jesus for us. And the finished work of Jesus on the Christ, uh, uh, Christ on the cross for us, we're united in that belief. One baptism, we're united in security. I think this baptism is not referring to to water baptism, but instead is, is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all made to drink of one spirit. So we're all secure in our unity with God because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit has secured us together in that way. So we're united in that one baptism. We're united with one God and Father of all, meaning we're united in the family of God together. What kind of family? Who can exist in a family like this? Who can make a family like this exist? A family who's one body, equally empowered, sharing the same future, submitting to the same authority, following the same truth, and all secured. Who in the world can have a family unified like that? Well, Probably God, the God and Father of all, who it says is over all, God's supreme in power, is through all. God can use all things for his purposes and is in, in all. God's presence is everywhere in his churches. So our unity is not small, it's not flimsy, it's not fickle, it's not around preferences or personalities or hobbies or convenience. Our unity is around deep and eternal and lasting things. Our unity is, it's holy and it's beautiful. Now look back there at verse three. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Maintain implies that what? That it's under threat of corruption. Just because it's holy and it's beautiful and it's different and it's wonderful does not mean it's not under the threat of corruption. What most erodes our unity? Well, what we do, like people do, right? Because we're a community of 
people and people are messy. And when people start like, like living in close proximity with one another and, and, and doing life together, right, we, we have friction, right? As we go different directions, we have different ideas. There's friction there, which makes the temperatures rise. And then there's, there's an explosion, there's destruction. Like, like we erode our unity so often because people produce that friction. You look in the Old Testament, Moses, they, he's, he's in the desert with the Israelites. They're doing the same thing. They're trying to go to the promised land, right? It's simple. Let's just keep going. We're following God. Let's keep going. And yet they constantly bickered. They constantly got, didn't get along. There was constant, there, there was discord all over the place. In the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 18 makes sure to tell us, look, here's how you handle conflict. Why didn't he just say, don't have conflict? Why not just that? Because he understands people. He understands how we're wired. He understands our weaknesses. And so he tells us, here's how you handle that, those difficulties. And so Paul says, look, be eager to maintain that. What does that mean? Be vigilant. Be watchful of the things that will corrupt that unity and work hard to maintain that unity. Why? Because it's worth it. It's holy and it's powerful and God wants to do incredible things through his unified, beautiful bride. He has incredible things for us. And so he says, work hard to maintain that unity. I have great things in store for you. I have deep wells and reservoirs of joy for you in this unity. Work hard to maintain it. So how do we maintain it? Well, we've already established using verse one and three that walking in a manner worthy of our calling will help us maintain the unity of the spirit. So what is that manner in which we should walk? In other words, what are the keys to maintaining our unity? What are the key attitudes or the key behaviors that we should have to maintain our unity? Therefore, in verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at the end there. It says, in love. Tagged on to the end of verse 2. All four of these can be found in some form in 1 Corinthians 13. When we look at the, the perfect definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, all four of these can be found in some form or fashion in that definition of love. And that's very good news. Do you know why? Because love is a choice. It's not based on feelings or emotions or anything like that. That means that these attitudes, these keys to us maintaining our unity are not based on circumstances. They're not based on personalities. They're not based on our feelings. These are choices we can make to maintain our unity. And you say, well, I had a bad day. These are choices you can make in the middle of your bad day. I had a good day. These are choices you can make in a good day, right? It doesn't matter. Our, we're not, our unity is not, uh, it's not a victim to circumstances. It's not victim to uh, personalities or anything like that. It's not victim to our emotions or our feelings. It's not fickle. It's a choice. We can make these choices, and that's wonderful, wonderful news for us. So look at number one, humility. In Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is a perfect picture of humility. It says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so casting all things aside, he, he took our sin on himself on the cross, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it encourages us in Philippians 2, verse 3, to emulate that. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility <coughs> count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So reject conceit 
and consider, count others as more significant than yourselves. Is there an area of your life where you struggle with conceit, where you struggle with counting others more significant than yourselves? And listen, this conceit I'm talking about can be subtle, all right? Rarely is the conceit I'm talking about right on the surface, where you're just like, I'm better than you, right? That's really rare. That doesn't happen a lot because people get punched in the face for that, right? So it rarely it's that, okay? Like we, we want to be a little bit more polite than that. But it, it can be subtle. And, and looking here, it doesn't have to be like that. In fact, it might look like this. Anything short of counting others as more significant than ourselves could be, could be defined as conceit. Anything short of counting others as more important than ourselves could be conceit. That's incredibly subtle. So we need to ask ourselves, is there an area of our life where that can't be said of me, where I, it can't be said of me that I count others as more significant than myself? And I know that's true of me. I know that, that there are areas in my life where what I want matters more, where, where my opinion is more valuable, where, where I'm more valuable, Right? If that's you, figure out what that area is and, and confess it to the Lord and ask the Lord to help you with that. Ask the Lord to give you a proper perspective of yourself in view of his mercy. And I think one of the things that helps us kind of diffuse our conceit is view your conceit uh, with thankfulness. And here's what I mean. I don't mean go, Lord, thank you for making me conceited and prideful and terrible, right? Like, I don't mean that. But what I mean is that thing that you take pride in, that thing that you're conceited about, Thank the Lord for that thing. And recognize that what? What's the source of all goodness? What's the source of your talents and your gifts and your abilities? Who's the source of that? God is. And when I start to give thanks to God for those things, then I realize what? How ridiculous it is for me to take credit for it in the first place. It highlights how ridiculous my conceit is. Why? Because the Lord is the one who's given this to me. The Lord is the one who deserves all of the credit, right? So confess it and then view your conceit in light of thankfulness to God, right? I can't boast because it's a gift from him. Now think about our unity. Think about protecting our unity. What would it look like? If we were all humble in the way that we thought towards one another, if we considered one another as more significant than ourselves, if we rejected selfish ambition and conceit, and we considered one another as more significant than ourselves, what in the world would our unity look like in our churches? What, is that, what does that humility look like lived out? Well, it looks like the second thing, gentleness. Humility is the inward attitude and gentleness is the outward expression. Some of your Bibles might not say gentleness, it might say meekness, which is, which is strength under control or, or self-control there. And when I think of gentleness, I, I think of gentleness as, as abundant consideration. And let me define that. Where your words and your actions are measured so as not to cause harm to others. Your words and your actions are so measured so as not to cause harm to others. You consider others' feelings. You consider the interest of others. We don't just say, you know what, I want to say it, so I'm going to say it, right? We don't just say, I'll do what I want and I'll have to deal with it, right? We don't just say, this is just the way it is. We don't just lash out. We restrain our strength. And again, because gentleness is an outward expression of humility, what is humility? Serving the interest of others, right? Not just looking to ourselves, what, right there in verse 4 in chapter 2, not just looking to the interest of ourselves, but the interest of others, right? 
So gentleness is just that, that abundantly, being abundantly considerate, right? And is that true of you? Are you abundantly considerate? When it comes to your preferences, are you not putting your preferences above others? Are you, are you considering how will this affect them? How is this in their best interest, not just mine? When it comes to your work or in your home or even in disagreements, are you abundantly considerate, gentle, not prideful and arrogant, just, just letting your words spew out of your mouth or letting your actions just just fall where they may are you gentle and again think about our unity in christian community what would it look like if we were a church full of abundantly considerate people thirdly be patient patience can be translated long suffering and i like that better because it helps me understand patience better because look look at the two words they're long suffering 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 costs you something right and it costs you your comfort most often right how many guys suffer and you're like man it just feels good Feels good to suffer, right? Like, no, suffering usually costs you your comfort, and it could cost you your comfort because unjustly, right? You've been wronged, or it could cost you your comfort because you're not doing things the way you want them to be done. It could just be the sacrifice of your preference, but, but it's suffering, right? It's costing you something. It's costing you your comfort, and then it says long-suffering. So, so not only does it put up with a lot, but it puts up with a lot for a long time. It love here, loving our neighbors this way, protecting our unity this way, we don't have a short fuse. So we choose to put up with a lot for a long time. It's like when Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I'll forgive him? As many seven times? And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, right? What's he saying? Jesus is illustrating that the heart of God is long suffering and so should ours be. We see that in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient, long suffering towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord wants to return. He wants to put an end to the, the, the blasphemy against his name and he wants to set up his kingdom and he wants to reunite with his bride and yet he's long suffering so that some will come to repentance so long suffering is the heart of God and it should be ours when we're tempted to just let our fuse be short consider God's patience with you when we're tempted to say this person's not worth uh, worth my discomfort consider God's discomfort for you I think a key to being patient with one another is praying for one another Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book life together wrote this A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. So pray for those you struggle with patience for. And lastly, bearing with one another. As gentleness is the outward expression of an inward attitude of humility, so is bearing with one another to patience. It's the outward expression of patience. Bearing with one another gives us a picture of carrying a weight, doesn't it? Right? And and so putting up with someone's difficulties or even their idiosyncrasies might be a burden, but with the attitude of patience, I I will endure much for a long period of time, you'll carry that burden. Meaning we don't give up on people. We don't write them off. You know, you might have someone who falls over and over and over into the same sin over and over again. Well, what, what someone who bears with someone another, I'm not gonna give up on you, right? You might have somebody who thinks so completely different 
differently than you, that it just rubs you the wrong way, but you're going to say, I'm not going to write you off. I'm going to bear with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the same book wrote this. The Christian must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It's only when he's a burden that another person is really a brother, not merely an object to be manipulated. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Christ, but he bore them as a mother carries her child, as a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that has been found. God took men upon himself and they weighted him to the ground, but God remained with them and they with God. In bearing with men, God maintained fellowship with them. It was the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross and Christians must share in this law. Again, think about our unity. What would our church look like if we bore one another's burdens, if we were humble and gentle and patient and bore our burdens together in love? God would accomplish so much for his fame and our joy. I wanna close this morning um, or transition into our Lord's Supper this morning in this way. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he prayed for our unity. For real, he prayed for our unity. He, he wasn't spending his time praying about uh, what was to come. He did pray for that, but it, wasn't, it, didn't, it didn't engulf his entire time. He literally looked to the future, looked to us, and prayed for our unity. And so I want to close with that prayer for us. If you would, would you stand? Can we stand real quick? And if you feel comfortable, I know it's like cold and flu season, so if not, that's cool. But would, would you hold hands? Could we hold hands across this room? If you're like, I'll, you don't have to, but I would, if you're like a husband and wife, for sure, for sure hold hands, all right? Like, that might look weird, all right. Can I pray for us? Let me, let me I just wanna pray Jesus' prayer for us. Let, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we can't begin to pray a better prayer for our unity than yours. So, so we want to echo it back to you. You prayed. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Lord Jesus, let it be so. Amen.